0: Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health, and today we are going to talk about functional genomics, which some of you may understand the potential, but my guess is that most of you don't. I I only recently began to fully appreciate the enormous value that this type of testing modality can have to determine and guide you through a whole variety of different health obstacles. So we have an expert in this area, his name is Dr. Bob Miller, and he has a company that's devoted to testing and helping people apply the, the, and understand the results of this and improve their health. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Bob.
1: It's been a pleasure. been looking forward to this.
0: Okay. So I gave you a brief intro, but perhaps you can expand on that and let people know how you got into this type of work.
1: Sure. Well, I'm a traditional naturopath, and as a traditional naturopath, you know we're not licensed medical doctors, so we don't diagnose, treat, prescribe. We look at that functional approach of how is the terrain off in the body? That's the traditional naturopathic approach,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that when the terrain is off, when the body's toxic or inflamed, that's when pathogens have a better opportunity to thrive with inside the body. And What's interesting is uh, many years ago, I just learned about you know, homocysteine and how there's pathways that clear it. And I became very fascinated by it. And then I started looking at the enzymes that clear it and then the genetics behind it. And I was just absolutely fascinated. And now my whole naturopathic holistic practice is dedicated to helping folks you know, measure their functional genomics, which is you know, quite a bit different than traditional genetics that looks for disease patterns, and try to find out how we can make interventions uh, to bring the body back into balance. And one of my favorite sayings is the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know a thing. And uh, we have to continue to dig. And uh, every couple of months, we make some new discovery that's uh, very exciting. And our goal is to be able to make a, a contribution to uh, to functional practitioners so they can do their job uh, a lot better and improve the lives of those who are suffering with some of those things that nobody can seem to to figure out.
0: Yeah, I first met you at Dr. Klinghart's event, and we were with we both speakers, and I was just really amazed that someone else was talking about peroxynitrite. Not only that, but all these other molecular pathways that are really not taught in most schools and uh, yet they're very important. So you alluded to the concepts, which I really want to nail home in that uh, many of the people who see you and consult with you and your other practitioners um, have been to large numbers of other clinicians, many of them very good clinicians, but they haven't yet integrated the individualized, customized approach of looking at their genetics uh, what they're predisposed to, and and then um, there are also their uh, organic acid test, which is talking about their meta- how their metabolism is actually expressing that genetics. So you t- you take some of the sickest of the six and are and are able by to help walk them through uh, and return to their path of health by understanding these complex pathways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we probably have twenty percent of our clients come from the our local region. Uh, we speak. Uh, remotely to people all over the world, uh, particularly Australia, Canada, Norway, uh, speak to a lot of people in uh, California, despite the fact we're in uh, Pennsylvania, and many times uh, we see people with chronic Lyme disease, people with multiple chemical sensitivity, those with mold sensitivity, those chronic conditions where they can't detox, and you know they might be seeing the best uh, medical care, particularly for Lyme disease, getting the best antibiotics, but They struggle because they herx on it, because they can't detox. Mm -hmm. And to, to sum up what I think we're finding is that those with genetic weakness are just being exposed epigenetically to so many environmental factors that we weren't exposed to 50 to 75 years ago, that their ability to detox is overwhelmed. And I think this is a whole new paradigm that we have to look at in wellness. Those people that don't have a specific disease, so to speak, but mm-hmm. are just totally overwhelmed by all of the epigenetic factors such as the pesticides, the EMFs that you know, you're you taking a lead in studying, uh, the uh, excess iron that we have in foods, the plastics that we're being exposed to, mold that might be getting stronger, sometimes even over-supplementation with things mm-hmm. like folate and, and glutamine. And there's just a myriad of things that just overwhelm so many people's ability to detox. That no matter what they try, it doesn't work. We often see people that say, you know, I went to a practitioner, they gave me one supplement and I couldn't handle it Mm -hmm. because they're so inflamed and so toxic. uh, No matter what they try, it seems to, to backfire on them. And that's why we need to move to personalized care based upon the individual. And fortunately, we now have tools to do that. Yeah.
0: So why don't we discuss those tools at this time and help us understand what a genetic variant is and what percentage of the population actually carries these that may predispose them to disease?
1: Sure. Now, of course, again, we have the geneticists who look at genes that are related to very specific diseases. We don't look at those. We're not trained as geneticists. We're looking at functional genetics. And just very briefly, I think most people know this, but you know, I'm all, everyone's seen pictures of like that ladder that represents their DNA. And on the end of those rungs, they get a molecule from mother and father. So you're 50% mother, 50% father. And what's on the end uh, can usually be one of two things. And one of them makes the DNA optimal. And the other one is called a variant or a SNP or a defect, whatever you want to call it. And then what happens is that gene is not working as effectively. Now to make this simple, We eat fats, carbohydrates, proteins. We drink water, breathe air, and expose to sunlight. And what an absolute miracle it is that all of that turns into us. Our blood, our skin, our nails, our organs, our thought processes, all of that is one enzymatic process after another. So an enzyme takes substance A, pulls in what we call cofactors, and makes substance B. And that continually happens through the body, one process after another. And it's the genes or your genetic makeup that is the instructions on how to make the enzymes. And when we have genetic variants or SNPs or defects on the genes, sometimes those enzymes either aren't as effective as making it or might even be upregulated or downregulated. So therefore that substance A to substance B may not occur as it should. Now, people get all excited about whether they have genetic variants or not, but there's something else just as important, and that's the cofactor. Remember we said, substance A plus cofactors turns into substance B. So you could have absolutely perfect genetics, that enzyme is made perfectly, and if you're missing the enzymes, that A to B is not gonna work. On the other hand- You're missing the cofactors. If you're missing the cofactors, yes. Then on the other hand, you could have all the cofactors you want. And if the genes are defective and you don't make the enzymes, it's not going to work. Now, where people really get hit hard is where they've got genetic weakness and cofactor weakness. And then there's a third piece. Sometimes there's things that interfere. For example, lead, mercury, and other things may suppress that enzymatic function. So this really becomes a 3D chess game. You can have genetic defects that the enzyme's not as effective or made enough of. You can be missing the cofactors, or you can have exogenous things that we normally weren't exposed to that can actually block that process as well. And then that substance A to substance B doesn't occur. Now, interestingly, we're an incredible organism, and we have all kinds of backups. And so one pathway can be not working, and another one might kick in. But what we're observing as we study, and we have the Neutrogenic Research Institute here to study this, is that those people who are struggling usually have multiple pathways blocked, plus then they get multiple epigenetic exposures. You know, perhaps they live next to a farm where they were ingesting pesticides in their water supply. Maybe they live next to a pond or a damp area and they were breathing mold. Maybe they were a mechanic and had their hands in grease and oil for years a beautician who is just inhaling all of these fumes. So when you get those epigenetic and genetic factors going together, that's when things really start going awry.
0: Okay. And um, just to clear up some of the jargon uh, that people hear, uh, you referred to SNPs, and that's just an easier way of saying the acronym, which is uh, single nucleotide polymorphism, uh, which is simply a substitution for one Uh, base into the DNA that causes a disruption of the expression of that uh, protein. So it's just easier to say SNPs than the Yeah, so um, so let me see. Why don't we talk about, there's so many different things. You talked about the cofactor. so thanks, thanks for expanding on that. And let's talk about one of my favorite components, and actually one that I'm doing deep dive on now in autophagy and how to activate it. And so if you can talk about mTOR and the relationship to autophagy uh, and uh, gosh, we could spend a whole few hours on this one. It's it's so important, but there's a lot of confusion in this. And normally, you know, typically protein restriction, you don't want to activate mTOR all the time. So talk about the cycling too. Sure. Exactly.
1: Well, what's, what's fascinating is uh, there's a rhythm to just about everything. And there's two processes in the body that kind of work together and they're both as important, but they're the inverse to each other. One is called mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin, long name. And again, you could get your, I I know individuals who have their PhD in mTOR and you know, we could talk about it for days, but quite simply, we call it the construction crew, how the body takes nutrients and uses them to make new tissues. If we didn't have mTOR, The sperm and the egg would never become the baby. The baby would never become the adult. And even as adults, we need mTOR to make new tissue. So it's an important process. However, there's another process called autophagy. And if you Google autophagy Nobel Prize, you'll see the Nobel Prize in medicine in 2016 was for autophagy. In simple terms, autophagy is like the janitors, the cleanup crew. Uh, The body makes what are called autophagosomes that envelop virus, bacteria, molds, and most importantly, old cells. Your cells are constantly dividing, and that old cell has to be recycled. I'm in a farming country, and I tell to my clients, you know, at the end of the season, the farmer plows under his crop, it rots, ferments, and becomes the fuel for the spring crop. The same way with our cells. Our old cells become recycled. Some of the proteins and amino acids actually get used to make the new cells. And one of the ways you can tell if your autophagy is not working is when you get those age spots, sunspots, liver spots, whatever you like to call them. That's when the old cell is not cleared away and it becomes oxidized, becomes senescent. And it actually becomes a free radical giving uh, reactive oxygen species. Now, we need a balance between these two. We need a time to build. We need a time to clean. And one of the things that our research institute did in some of our studies on those with chronic Lyme disease, we found that we are being ever exposed to more epigenetic or environmental factors that are stimulating the mTOR. Mm-hmm. So what we found is that, you know, as, as you point out so well on your website, and by the way, uh, Dr. McCall, I mean, what a service you're doing to humanity by your website and all that information. You know, uh, you, know you point out how we're b- being bombarded in plastics. Well, those are xenoestrogens. Mm-hmm. That drives mTOR. Uh, for some people, they're getting actually too much protein. There's certain proteins that drive mTOR. That's why sometimes bodybuilders who just, you know, devote their whole life to this, their kidneys quit on them before they're 50 because they're constantly stimulating their their mTOR. EMF, one of your favorite subjects, we're finding that stimulates insulin, and probably in other ways as well, stimulates the mTOR. Iron stimulates mTOR. And clearly we're living in an environment where we're fortifying our foods with iron, perhaps too much. And there's actually genetic variants that can cause people to absorb more iron than the average person. Uh, Then some people are learning about methylation and everything you've heard about methylation is absolutely true, but they find out they have a SNP in one gene called MTHFR. They start taking massive amounts of folate every day. Or methylfolate. Methylfolate. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that can overstimulate the mTOR. And then we're finding that glutamine, which of course is very important for cell growth and people take it for their for their gut but if in excess can stimulate the mTOR. So there's things from our environment and even things we can do that can overstimulate this mTOR. Now what happens is when mTOR is stimulated, it shuts down autophagy. It just says, okay, we're building mode, janitors, take a break. So one of the things we're finding is that many of the health challenges we're seeing today very well may be related to mTOR in excess. Now, mTOR doesn't cause cancer, but it supports cellular growth. So if someone has cancer, overstimulated mTOR would stimulate the cell, the cancer cell, just like anything else. From what I understand, pharmaceutical industries are looking at drugs that possibly can slow down mTOR as alternatives for cancer treatment. Sure, they have those. It's rapamycin is the primary one. Mm-hmm. Yes. I understand there's research on uh, looking for others as well. Now, this is why the ketogenic diet, I believe, is becoming so popular because when you go into that diet, you're cutting some of the carbs that stimulate the sugar. I think I forgot to mention that insulin stimulates mTOR. So all these sugary drinks, we're getting so much more sugar and high fructose corn syrup. That's stimulating mTOR. So when people do ketogenic diet where they, you know, Drastically reduce the carbohydrates, somewhat reduce the proteins, and go—you know—feeding the body off of ketones. That slows down the mTOR, speeds up the autophagy, and they feel significantly better. Now, if we have time, we can talk about how that doesn't work for some people and it's—it's it's a disaster for them. But for many people, that's a very effective. So your intermittent fasting and your—you uh, know—ketogenic eating, both slow down mTOR, and speed up autophagy. Now, interestingly, we have identified the genes that are involved with autophagy. They're called ULK1, ULK2, AMPK, and AT, uh, ATG. Those all stimulate autophagy. And we're finding that when people have a lot of genetic variants, especially when they inherit it from both parents, this is where many of them, their autophagy is weakened. They're 45 years old and covered with age spots. They can't detox. So ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting, and there's actually nutrients that support it. Lithium and berberine support autophagy. Resveratrol and curcumin slow down mTOR. So when you put the three together, the caloric restriction mimetics that's what those are called, along with the keto diet, along with some form of intermittent fasting, you're really able to bring balance to that mTOR autophagy. So I believe 100 years ago, it probably wasn't all that far out of balance. But we're just doing things environmentally and epigenetically that's throwing that out of balance. And those with genetic weakness are being hit the hardest. Yeah,
0: and um, the relationship, uh, you had mentioned that mTOR doesn't cause cancer, and I think that's correct, but it does indirectly because the, there's a relationship between mTOR and autophagy, as you mentioned, and when mTOR is inhibited, then autophagy is activated, and autophagy or removing of the cells will uh, actually help that, and this, specifically, the senescent cells that you mentioned, which is so important, because these senescent cells secrete inflammatory cytokines, which, contributes to chronic inflammation, which is a, pre, a risk factor for cancer. And, and actually, uh, apoptosis, which is a sort of the extension of autophagy, we're actually taking whole cells out, out of the picture, uh, is what's impaired too. So if you have mTOR chronically activated, it's going to impair opt- apoptosis, and, your ability, and if that's impaired, your risk for cancer is going to go up big time.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, did you you mentioned you were going to talk about the scenarios where the recommendations to inhibit mTOR and activate autophagy, like intermittent fasting, and the other factors you mentioned, were going to be a problem for some people? Did you start down that pathway already, or was it another? Another? Or oh,
1: you you want to talk about when uh, when intermittent yeah, when fasting it might not be, um,
0: when it yeah. might not be useful?
1: Sure. And then I'll maybe I'll circle back to some of the other things that genetically jack up the mTOR. Uh, one of the other things that we're researching, and, and this was done by some of my, uh, my research team, I have to give credit to, uh, to Beth O'Hare, one of my researchers, who found that uh, the heme pathway is very, very important. And this is where we take succinyl COA from the Krebs cycle, and we take glycine, an amino acid, to start an eight-step process of making the heme protein. And you know, we tend to think of the heme protein as, oh, yes, that makes hemoglobin. Mm-hmm. True. But heme is involved with making nitric oxide, making catalase, SOD, SUOX, which is your sulfite to sulfate conversion. So again, it's in the cytochromes. Yeah. Cytochrome P450. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So it's involved in so many processes that I didn't even realize until we started to, uh, to research. So, these are the people that many times, if this pathway is impaired, and it can be impaired by, you know, uh, th- th- and there's debate on this. I mean, there's some people that think it's true and there's others that think it's not. And I'm not going to get into the fray, but there's some thought that glyphosate may impact uh, glycine. Uh, it's argued for and against, but clearly lead will impact the, uh, the heme pathway. And then there are genetic variants in the heme pathway. And if any of those happen, you don't make your adequate heme. So you're going to be a very poor detoxer. Now, what's interesting, and again, the research team found this, that what are called porphyrins, if they're not transferred one to another, they will block what is called the GABA receptor sites. Mm -hmm. And GABA is the don't worry, be happy, sleep, relax. And clearly there's problems with anxiety in the world today. So if this heme pathway gets disturbed, these are people that oftentimes really crave carbohydrates. And if they try to go keto, it doesn't work. If they try to do intermittent fasting, it doesn't work. And then they feel like failure is like they can't do it, but it's really not their fault. Uh, And it's a small amount of people, but for some individuals that just crave carbohydrates and they'll, they'll get hangry if they don't have their carbohydrates, uh, they're actually feeding that, uh, that heme pathway. So if someone's ever tried keto and it's like, this just does not work for me, uh, there's the potential that the heme pathway could be impaired and you have to keep those carbohydrates coming in on a regular basis uh, to feed it, else you feel horrible. I remember in the past telling me, people telling me, whenever I try to eat healthy, I feel horrible. And when I eat junk, I feel better. And I used to think, yeah, I'm not sure i buy that. <laughs> <laughs> but now that you understand this heme pathway and how, you know, carbohydrates and simple sugars can feed it, it starts to make sense that that is a potential scenario for some people. Now, let's circle back to what else can stimulate mTOR. One of the first things we found in our research was difficulty with iron. Now, we all know that iron is critical. I mean, if you don't have iron, you don't make your hemoglobin, you don't deliver your oxygen, it's a must-have. But iron has to be carried around very carefully. And if iron is in excess or not chaperoned properly, it can be one of the nastiest free radicals you will find. And it can do tremendous amount of damage. And here's one of the interesting things we found through our research. There are many people who have genetic predisposition to over-absorbing iron, but yet they're told all their life they're anemic. And it just seems like such a dichotomy. How can I be anemic if I'm over-absorbing iron? One of the things that we're really big fans of, and find this in many, many of the people who are struggling and can't get answers anywhere else, is that they overabsorb the iron. And then for many of them, there's an enzyme called ferroportin. Ferroportin is what takes iron out of the cells and SNPs there, or, or genetic defects, inhibits the removal of the iron. Then through something called the Fenton reaction discovered by Dr. Fenton in 1895 is that iron combines with hydrogen peroxide to make hydroxyl radicals and you and I've discussed this often this can then go on to make another nasty free radical called peroxynitrite so consequently the person is anemic because they are measuring you know what's in the blood but the iron can be in excess And inside the cells, causing massive inflammation, as that iron bangs around inside the cell, it creates fatigue because the mitochondria is having a hard time making energy. And these are the people that if someone gives them iron, many times they feel considerably worse Mm -hmm. because they've just fed the fire. So in our consulting, one of the things I think we probably do the most is identifying The Fenton reaction going on and taking remedial action to, for example, help turn the hydrogen peroxide into water through an enzyme called catalase, supporting enzymes called and antioxidants called glutathione and thriadoxin that turn the hydrogen peroxide into water, using some homeopathics to make the iron behave itself. And I know one of the things that you're a big fan of as well is hydrogen water. Mm-hmm. Because hydrogen water seems to have an effect on this, uh, this excess hydroxyl radicals. So quite simply, uh, H2O2 plus iron equals OH minus,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is a nasty free radical. And we believe that uh, hydrogen H2 combines with that to go back to water H2O. So that's why something as simple as hydrogen water can be so powerful in knocking down these, these hydroxyls. You know,
0: I, I've interviewed Tyler LeBaron, who's probably one of the leading experts in molecular hydrogen. And uh, what you described is the conventional wisdom on how molecular hydrogen works. But I think there's, uh, he's actually coming up with a mechanism that's gonna publish it soon, maybe before this interview is published, I don't know. But the, uh, it, it may be more related to upregulation of some of the antioxidants pathways like the NRF2 where you're hormetically producing anti, antioxidants through uh, catalyzing the production through the DNA rather than taking them yourself, yes. so that may be because it may not directly neutralize the hydroxyl free radicals. That that puppy doesn't last very long. It's only like a billionth of a second. Yes. So um,
1: it, I've it, heard that. Yeah. yeah. And I I have I don't have I've I've talked to Tyler about that as well. And uh, you know, for now, that's what I'm what I'm telling folks, with the proviso that it could be other mechanisms. But needless to say, it's it's neutralizing the free radicals through yeah, the that's process, the end result, right? right. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, there's also other mechanisms that happen to relate to genetic SNPs, and I happen to have one of them where taking iron and you're anemic makes it worse, and that would be sickle cell anemia or thalassemia, and uh, this. So the, what I've learned, because I have thalassemia, is that it really is important for me to keep my iron levels low. As, and I keep my and, that, and I do that by getting my ferritin levels below 40. Actually, my most recent one was close to 30. So um, and that helps minimize the production of hydroxyl free radicals. So that and the simple way to do that is just donate your blood or go on a low iron 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 um, Poor diet, I guess. So
1: yes, that would be. Yeah, there's an excellent book out there called Dumping Iron.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, can't think of the author but It's an excellent book. If someone wants yeah, he, to, uh,
0: he passed away. I was going to interview him, but he passed away.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's for the layperson, and uh, I believe you can get it uh, in hard copy or uh, electronically. Fascinating book. Mm-hmm. So that's
0: a you know. So for those scenarios where you're anemic and taking iron makes you worse, then you want to actually lower your iron and support the the uh, pathways to prevent the production of hydroxyl free radicals.
1: And it's so cool that now through genetic testing, we can actually see where the problem is. You can see if you have what are called the HFE variants that cause you to absorb the SLC-40A1s that cause you to have less than optimal ferroportin. There's other genes that will cause you to to absorb more iron. Uh, One of our favorite subjects that, uh, you know, we've talked about is, NADPH. And we can now look at, you know, do we have pathways that that might be inappropriate? You can also look at the entire pathway of, of glutathione. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, perhaps it'd be good to talk about glutathione because glutathione is the master antioxidant. So a lot of people think that, okay, I'm inflamed. I'm going to take some cysteine because that's the rate limiting factor. And that's going to help me make more glutathione. That's absolutely true if the enzymes that make that happen are working. If some of the enzymes that don't take the cysteine and turn it into glutathione, and you take more cysteine, and you have an iron problem, the cysteine can combine with the iron to again make those hydroxyl radicals. So it goes back to, we, we've got to get away from cookie cutter, oh, you're inflamed, take n cysteine. n cysteine can be the perfect thing for you to do or it can make you worse, depending upon that individual's genomic makeup.
0: Yeah, and then there's another area of confusion, too. And you've you developed in your practice this really nice hierarchical pyramid that places the importance of different variables uh, and, and the, your approach to treating them. And interestingly, many people who uh, superficially look at uh, functional genomics think that the methylation defect is like one of the most important. It is important. But it really is one of the last things that you look at. It's at the top of the pyramid. So you look at all these other supporting foundational things first. So why don't you talk about the, the, how, much,
1: how too much emphasis is being placed on MTHFR as a SNP? Sure. Absolutely. Well, you know, this is evolving. We're just learning. And, you know, maybe it was 10, 11 years ago, we learned about a, a SNP called MTHFR. And it's a very important one. It's about how we take, you know, folic acid or folate from our diet and turn it into methylfolate which is a very important molecule. For a woman who's pregnant, you gotta have it for a good pregnancy, okay? We're not saying it's not a good thing. However, you know, we learned about this, and all of a sudden we were, you know, kind of shouting from the rooftops, if you have MTHFR, you need to take methylfolate. And a lot of people did. Now, one of the interesting things about methylfolate is you need it for pregnancy because it supports mTOR. So if someone's already in mTOR dominance, And they take methylfolate they're going to get more anxious and more inflamed i've talked to so many people who said oh yeah i had mthfr somebody put me on methyl b12 methylfolate i felt great for two weeks and then i crashed and the reason they crashed is because they started to stimulate mTOR weakening their autophagy even more driving more inflammation So I like to tease that I have my PhD from the School of Hard Knocks because I made that mistake, too. You know, eight years ago, I was MTHFR. Let's get you some methylfolate. And all of a sudden, it's like, what's happening here? And then as we dug deeper, we realized that methylfolate is important, but it has to be done at the right time. And as you said, that's why I developed my pyramid. And as they can see there on the pyramid, at the very bottom, we have things we have to address first, such as, is iron becoming a free radical? Is hydrogen peroxide not being cleared? Is there something called NOS uncoupling, where rather than making nitric oxide, we make more peroxynitrite? And then we look at how are we making antioxidants? How's our glutathione pathways? How's our superoxide dismutase? How are we making NADPH? And when anybody says this is the way you always have to do it, I get a little worried. But for the most part, I believe that when people are massively inflamed, you need to address that first. What I'll tell my clients is when the house is on fire, you don't paint the walls and mow the lawn. You start with the inflammation. So if someone is massively inflamed, if their iron is creating hydroxyl radicals, if they have weakness in their antioxidants and they're massively inflamed and you throw some methylfolate in there, sometimes that might work, but there's a very good chance it will make the situation worse. Mm-hmm. So what I usually tell people with MTHFR is, you know, there's no cookie cutter, there's no always do it this way, because I get a little concerned when somebody says, this is what you always do, because there's always extenuating circumstances that can change anything. But by and large, if someone's massively inflamed, I like to think about methylfolate six to eight months down the road, two to three days a week. You know, we tend to think if a little's good for us, a lot must be good for us. I'm now think thinking we really need to be talking about pulsing things.
0: Yeah. Do you think that's the optimal dose for everyone, even if they're not previously inflamed? Two to three times uh, a
1: week. Two to three times a week. Yeah. I'm just a little concerned giving methylfolate. Every day. Now you if, could change the dosage based upon how much they need, mm. but again, you're constantly stimulating folate. One of the things we're playing around with, and it's still an experiment. You know, are there days that we support methyl, uh, that we support uh, mTOR, days that we support autophagy, and antioxidants, and rotate them back and forth? There's cycles, and I don't claim to know what they are. Is it during the day? Is it over a week? I don't know yet. Yeah. But I tend to think we need to. Pulse things, doing anything in excess uh, is probably not good.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, and that's one of my areas of passions right now is understanding what these the cycling should be. And you're the one who taught me about the stimulation of mTOR by uh, folic acid. I wasn't aware of that. So the practical implication of that is, if you are going through these cycles and you're maybe once a week or more frequently, you're going through a partial fast where you're stimulating autophagy through your dietary caloric restriction. The last thing in the world you ever want to think about doing is taking methylfolate, or even folate. Uh, So how the question for you is, how long? If you're anticipating doing a partial fast, where you're going to have really low glucose and high ketones how long should you be off the folate? Just that day or the day before or two days before?
1: Uh, again, this is all evolving and I don't think we have the ground and granted, here's what you do. Uh, but I generally have people not do the folate like the day before and the, the day after, just,
0: just, to day be after.
1: Yeah. Just, just to be on the safe side of, you know let the body readjust a little bit. And that same thing would apply to uh, you know, high levels of amino acids, you know, some of the amino acids. That's why bodybuilders take amino acids. So amino acids stimulate mTOR. Do we need amino acids? Absolutely. Is high levels of amino acids every day possibly detrimental to us? I tend to think so, that we need a well,
0: Especially the branch chain ones, leucine, yes. isoleucine, and valine. Those are the mm-hmm. ones that, especially leucine, that really gives the one, two punch to mTOR. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, thank you for explaining that. That's really helpful. Sure. Uh, if you want to go down one more pathway of inflammation, we can do that. Sure, let's do that. That, that is the, the big one, and that is what we call NOS uncoupling. Mm. And that uh, is where we, we need now, for a... For very... those who
0: don't know, why don't you explain what NOS
1: is? Sure. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, there's a there's a very important molecule called nitric oxide. Yes. Won the uh, the Nobel Prize in medicine, I think in the 80s, somewhere around there, uh, for the work on cardiovascular. I it was 91 or 2. Maybe, yeah. I think it was 92. Could be, yes. I think you're right. So nitric oxide is what... Uh, I mean, it does many, many things. Uh, and I think we're just scratching the surface. But one of the major things it's known for is dilating the blood vessels. Um, we also believe it is some kind of electron donor that we're still trying to, uh, to figure out. But let's just talk about for you know, dilating blood vessels. And if you look at charts, you'll see that L-arginine combines with NADPH, oxygen, and something called BH4. And then the NOS enzyme, mixes that all together, and makes nitric oxide, if everything's working well. However, there's genetic and epigenetic things that can mess up your BH4. I hope in this interview we can talk about NADPH, one of both of our favorite subjects. We'll, we'll talk about that next, but why don't you uh,
0: give the name for BH4, so people- Oh, will...
1: Tetrahydrobaroptin. Okay. So tetrahydrobiopterin or BH4, combines with NADPH, oxygen, l arginine And the NOS enzyme says, let's make nitric oxide. That's ideal. However, lots of things can go wrong. If you don't have enough BH4, if you don't have enough NADPH, if the NOS enzyme's not working, you make instead a free radical called superoxide. And that superoxide can combine with nitric oxide to make peroxynitrite, a very nasty free radical that does lots of damage. So that's why some men take L-arginine thinking I'm going to build muscles and improve my sexual health by increasing the nitric oxide and all they do is hurt because they've just made more superoxide rather than nitric oxide. So when you have the NOS enzyme working and you can see genetic variants in NOS, when you have adequate BH4, adequate How, How do you know that you have adequate BH4? Uh, there are uh, there are some uh, labs that measure. it. They'll measure their BH two and their in uh, their BH four. Okay. Uh, a good way to also know is if uh, if someone's a little bit depressed. Well, that's mm. not the only factor, but BH four combines with tryptophan to make serotonin. So and sadly, peroxynitrite depletes your BH four and your melatonin. So uh, that's why sometimes. Uh, people take melatonin and feel so much better because they're actually scavenging peroxynitrite with melatonin. And possibly that's why you have sleeping difficulties because your melatonin is being used to scavenge your peroxynitrite. So that's NOS coupling and that's yet another way that we can make inflammation that depletes our uh, our antioxidants. Our major antioxidants are then used up, and consequently, we're inflamed.
0: So if if you suspect that you have low BH4, are there supplemental approaches to
1: augment the production of it? Well, one of the first things to do is make sure you're clearing your ammonia properly uh, because we have something in the kidneys called the urea cycle that clears ammonia. And genetically, you can actually even look at the whole urea cycle. So if you're not digesting your proteins properly and you're creating a lot of ammonia or the urea cycle is not clearing it, the body will kind of prioritize and say, you know, getting rid of this ammonia is more important than making serotonin and nitric oxide. So the body will actually use BH4, tetrahydrobaroptin to neutralize ammonia. So one of the first things you can do is make sure that you're clearing ammonia. So you can, you know, there's blood measurements for that. There's urine organic acids for that. And sometimes you can just ask people, do you smell Windex or kitty litter in your or perspiration? And uh, when they do, that's often can be an indication of high levels of ammonia. So there's things you can do to improve your digestion of proteins. Uh, ornithine uh, uh, will actually support uh, the urea cycle. Yucca helps you break down your proteins more effectively. Larch bark will absorb ammonia. And then specifically to support BH4, uh, SAMI is needed, small amounts. Methylfolate is needed. And interestingly, royal jelly is a naturally occurring source.
0: Hmm.
1: And by sopping up peroxynitrite, uh, you're sparing it. Because remember, peroxynitrite chews up BH4. So we we tend to think, well, let's take things to make BH4. But if it's being chewed up by peroxynitrite and ammonia, you probably can't take enough salmium folate to make enough which goes back to the 3D chess game played underwater. It's uh, (laughs) rather complex where people are looking for the SNP or the answer, uh, they're gonna be disappointed. And I think that's why some people have given up on genetics saying, well, I don't think it matters because they're looking for simple solutions and there aren't, it's dominoes. It's one thing affecting the other, the cofactors, the epigenetic factors, things that block it as well as the SNPs. Uh, thinking you're going to figure it out by looking at SNPs is uh, probably not going to get you very far. It's, it's a, radical. Yeah, that's
0: a very good point because you do a comprehensive analysis when someone sees you and you're actually one of the few clinics I know that it was when people see you in the office, you actually measure their phase angle and, and you know, been doing that for many years and you do the organic acid testing to give because the genetics will give you a suspicion of what's going wrong. But when you measure the metabolism, you have a much better idea and give, give more precise and effective recommendations.
1: Sure. One of my favorite sayings is genetics is never a diagnosis, but it tells you where to start looking. It's like shining a light. Think about looking here. Mm -hmm. Investigate whether this is a problem. Sometimes the SNPs show a problem, sometimes they don't. But it can really give you clues where to look where you may never have thought to look before.
0: Yeah. So you had talked about glutathione. Most people know about that as the master antioxidant, but glutathione loses its electrons pretty darn rapidly. And uh, then it essentially becomes useless or worse than useless, unless it's recharged by the body's battery, which is NADPH, a molecule that we're both very fond of. So why don't you talk about the NADPH steel, the term that you've coined and why it's so relevant to many of the clinical issues that you see today.
1: Sure. You know, one of the things that a lot of people are talking about is mast cells. I mean, there's Facebook groups about mast cells. And many people are recognizing that many people have excess mast cells. And, and these are folks who are often red in the face. They can't tolerate heat. They get rashes very, very quickly. Uh, many times they're sensitive to touch. A massage is just torture for them. Uh, if they scratch their arm with their fingernail, they'll get this red raised line because the histamine is being given off. And mast cells are not bad, not bad players. Mm -hmm. They are white blood cells that are there to come to our rescue when there's a pathogen or something else to deal with. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, it swells because the mast cells are giving off histamine. So we, we tend to, you know, think there's heroes and villains and I'm finding that there really isn't any that too many times we say antioxidants are good, free radicals are bad. Well, not really. Sometimes free radicals play a very important role in killing pathogens. Same with mast cells. We tend to think, oh, these mast cells are bad. I need to tamp them down. I tend to think that we need to find out why the mast cells are overfiring. So one of the things that we did, and, and we just presented this at the, uh, at the International Lyme Disease Conference in November, with our poster, and I was very pleased that we were, the, we were the poster winner for research. And what we identified is that there's many, again, epigenetic factors that are stimulating mast cells. Now, hold that thought, because I'm going to go back to NADPH. So in a simple term, as, as Dr. Mercola just said, glutathione, wonderful antioxidant, it has one chance to give a free radical electron. And once it does that, it becomes oxidized. Then we need to donate that electron back and there's this substance called NADPH that donates that electron back. It takes that oxidized glutathione, turns it back into reduced. That's a good thing. Now, this NADPH interestingly has a dual role. There's also an enzyme called NOX, NADPH oxidase. And its only purpose is to take this NADPH and turn it into a free radical. And you can see on the chart there, you can see how I, you can see NADPH to the right, recycling all the good things. And then to the left, NOx says, oh, oh, we've got an invader here. Now, they've done studies on animals, and when they knock out that NOx enzyme, the animal dies from infection mm-hmm. because it doesn't have the ability to kill that pathogen. So again, NOx and free radicals are not bad. But as you see on that chart, there are multiple factors that are now overstimulating NOx. One of them is sulfites. Sulfites need to turn into sulfates. And if we have problems with heme, we don't turn sulfites into sulfates. And of course, we have to give credit to uh, Dr. Stephanie Senef on this. She's the one who pointed this out, that many of us are having weakness in our sulfation. So if sulfites don't turn into sulfates those sulfites tell the NOX enzyme you need to make inflammation. Dopamine stimulates it. So if we're just stressed, stress will cause it. I don't know if we'll have time to talk about glutamate, but glutamate stimulates it. And earlier we spoke about iron. Iron stimulates the NOX enzyme, and so does of excessive mTOR. So here's one of the areas that we're researching are all of these epigenetic factors that we weren't exposed to 50 to 75 years ago, particularly hitting those who are genetically weakest the hardest and doing what I've coined the phrase the NADPH steel, taking too much NADPH and having it make uh, superoxide and hydrogen peroxide to stimulate mast cells. Just a theory at this point, and I'd love to do studies with universities to see if this is actually happening. But when you look at the literature, the literature is there that all of these things that I mentioned stimulate NOx. And we're having more of this than we had before. So the NADPH steel is when NADPH gets stolen away from recycling glutathione, recycling thriadoxin, making nitric oxide, and potentially making excess mast cells. Because there's a lot of people running around with these mast cells firing and they're, just, they're, they're really sick. They don't know what to do. Their whole life is ruined because the least little stimuli, and, that, and also mold. So I think this is why mold sensitivity is going through the roof because mold will stimulate mast cells. So I speak to people all the time. They can't find a house to live in because the least little bit of mold sends them over the edge. Mm-hmm. Uh for people who have extreme EMF sensitivity. By the way, we can measure the genes that make you sensitive to EMF, the calcium yeah. voltage channels. EMF yeah. will stimulate them. I just spoke to a lady just yesterday who can't find a place to live because she just can't get away from all the EMF that's putting them into to inflammation. So to sum it up, NADPH is critical for recycling your antioxidants. I believe the uh, the NAD+, and the NADPH are some of the most important Important things we can have adequate levels of for longevity and good health but we're using up a lot of it because we're exposed to so many toxic substances then if another set of substances is stealing it to stimulate nox to make mast cells then we've just doubled the problem uh, i did an interview with dr thea hardy from tufts university he believes that excess mast cells is stimulating the hypothalamus for autism if that is indeed true, then some of these patterns that we've identified, and again, this is theory, this is in fact, uh, if these patterns are true that excess sulfites from lack of sulfation or excess dopamine or excess iron is stimulating them, you know that could be why we're one of the causes that we're seeing such a rise in autism, why we're seeing such a rise in Epstein-Barr chronic fatigue, Lyme disease, because we're just stimulating these mast cells to make this massive inflammation potentially more than what we need and putting us into this massive inflammatory state. Yeah, This could, could be just why just... we're seeing such people anxious. I mean, you just turn on the news for 10 minutes and everybody's anxious.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. But there's another role for molecular hydrogen here, and I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but it, there's a number of studies that show that it's a pretty effective inhibitor of NOx So it can actually increase your concentration of NADPH. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. And curcumin is uh, an inhibitor of NOx. Mm -hmm. And uh, so is apigenin and and, uh, an olive leaf. I don't quite understand it, but aldosterone stimulates NOx. I'm not sure what that mechanism is. I can't figure that one out. But aldosterone stimulates NOx, and I don't don't know why. I
0: think there's another...
1: Uh, polyphenol uh, or flavonoid uh, luteolin does too luteolin does too yeah inhibits uh, nox yes right. and then those mast cells give off massive histamine mm-hmm. and how many people do you know that are you know on antihistamines anti- and having all these histamine reactions and uh, mm-hmm. their life is uh, is miserable because of all this uh, this histamine that's uh, impacting their yeah, that's their quality really would you say it's one of the more common diseases that you see well, I guess or what's the well, most common? Well, the uh I, I would have to say that, you know, the people I see are somewhat skewed. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. the people who come to me are like, we've heard that you're able to help people that can't help others. So, you know, probably 80% of the people who I consult with as clients have access mass cell activation. Now, clearly that's not happening to the general public, but for the demographics that, you know, get to us, that's what we're seeing and that out of those probably 80% have dysregulation of their iron as a factor now many of them also have weakness in autophagy you know weakness in uh, their glutathione pathways weakness in their nadph production it's usually the proverbial perfect storm yeah. multiple multiple factors coming together
0: yeah and one of the beautiful characteristics of the program you developed is that sh- You have some pretty talented programmers, and you've compiled all this data, the tens of thousands of patients you've seen, and put together all their SNPs, and you actually have a distribution for each SNP so that you can tell when you're evaluating a specific person where they rate in that range to know if that's normal or abnormal, and if if it's abnormal, how much of an abnormality it is, which is- Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Cool.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And still, you know, a lot of people say, well, we don't know which ones of these are s- clinically significant. And we don't. That's why we're the research institute to uh, to research, to you know, compare some SNPs to maybe some of your organic acids or other labs uh, to see if we can find patterns that uh, might be relevant. So as long as you use this tool as a, it's shining a light to give you an area to look, it's a valuable tool. If you try to say all the decisions are going to be based upon this, you could be misusing it. So we have to put it in perspective, the, the value. But uh, I just did a consult with a physician last night on a very complex case, and he was just saying, this is unbelievable how this is giving clues to look at areas that I never thought of looking before.
0: Now that's a, that's a good point because I want to take off on another tangent, and that is uh, you provided a, a taste of the type of service that you provide, and certainly this, and you do provide this to to, to patients. But the other important uh path that you have available is to teach clinicians who are interested or fascinated and love clinical molecular biology and taking these pathways and using it to help people get better so that you actually have a teaching course with your institute and uh have regular regular programs of uh every two weeks you actually have a webinar Mm
1: -hmm. yeah Uh, for for health professionals yeah we we have an online certification course about 30 hours Mm -hmm. And uh, then we have webinars every other Thursday evening at 8 p.m. And again, this is for practitioners only. Uh, And then we have uh, conferences. Uh, We just had our first conference, uh, November 2016 in Hershey. Uh, We're going to have one in, I'm sorry, uh, uh, November 2018 in Hershey. Our next one is going to be November 2019. And we're going to have a seminar September of 2019 on uh, environmental toxicity. And uh, we're hoping you can be there to speak about it. Yeah, I,
0: I've uh, I got on my schedule. I'm definitely going to
1: speak. Cool. I yeah, was going to make the last one because I had was at the ACIM event the same week. Sure. So what we're hoping to do is have a methylation map. And uh, perhaps here would be a good uh, chance to just show the complexity of the, the methylation, or the not the methylation, the inflammation map that we made uh, so clinicians can follow the pathways. But what we're going to be doing for September, again, for clinicians only, health professionals, we're going to have a uh, detoxification map that shows all the CYP pathways, all of the phase two pathways, acetylation, sulfation. And we want to have a a chip that can measure all of those. So practitioners can see where there might be weaknesses. Again, we're putting so much emphasis on methylation. Not many people are talking about acetylation. Not many people are talking about uh, sulfation. There's multiple pathways of phase two detox. And then there's the whole binding concept as well. So we're hoping to, when people come to that conference in September, we're going to have a huge map they can put on their wall that will show them all of the detox pathways. Then uh, next November, we're hoping to have it on neurotransmitters. Quick
0: question, though, on uh, methylation. Isn't the methylation also useful for other pathways than the uh, detoxification in phase two? Oh, absolutely. methylation of DNA
1: for... Oh, absolutely. Uh, Regulation of the uh, expression of proteins. Oh, absolutely. I mean, your methylation is where you make your SAMe, your S-dental methionine, which is involved in hundreds of of processes. Um, And particularly, the one that I find most fascinating is for histamine. There's an enzyme called histamine N-methyltransferase, HNMT. And it's what breaks down your histamine. And again, you can have genetic variants there that you don't break down your histamine, But if you don't have SAMI, because it's histamine and methyl, taking a methyl group, transferring it, so you need a methyl group to transfer that histamine to something that's not as harmful. So if you don't methylate and you'd have SAMI, you could have perfect HNMT genes, and you're not going to clear your histamine. So it's those two factors together. Clinical pearl here for, for clinicians, and that is that uh you don't see this very often, but there's literature that methionine to SAMI conversion by the MAT gene is inhibited by hydroxyl radicals. So those hydroxyl radicals will shut down the SAMI production. Then your your no matter what your HNMT genes look like, you're not going to break down your histamine. And that's why some people take niacin and they flush because the niacin somehow you know, uses up or utilizes methyl groups, then there may not be enough there for HNMT, and that's why niacin can cause that niacin flush. Yeah, and
0: what and you mentioned earlier how peroxynitrite actually increases hydroxyl free radicals and. One of the most pervasive causes of paraxin nitrate elevation, which is pernicious, it lasts 9 billion times longer than hydroxyl free radicals, which is why it causes so much more damage. And it actually can cause damage to the nucleus rather than the mitochondria, like most hydroxyl free radicals do. But one of the most pervasive causes of that is EMF exposure. So if you're chronically exposed to high levels of EMF on your cell phone, your Wi-Fi exposure, then you're going to have elevated peroxynitrite levels and contribute to dysfunction in many of the pathways you just reviewed you know you're going to suck up nadph you're going to create hydroxyl free radicals and you're going to have oxidative stress chronic oxidative stress and inflammation which is just pernicious to to disease
1: oh absolutely and that's what we see all the time in those who just can't get well they're just massively inflamed by hydroxyl radicals peroxynitrite lack of nadph weakened autophagy and uh, they just can't seem to to dig out of that hole, yeah. and uh, they're they're really suffering dramatically.
0: Yeah. Well, thankfully, you provide a resource to help people understand it, and more importantly, their clinicians. So, we'll include the content information for people who are interested in more details about the services you provide, and specifically for clinicians, so uh, that they can take the training. It, it's admitted it's an investment, but once you understand these at these levels, it'll really add another powerful tool and a resource that you can use to help get your sick patients better because you're most likely missing something that is hard to understand too. And one, one point I wanted to bring up and maybe you can just expand, you talk about this chip and why don't you describe that in more detail because that's a chip you're using to analyze the SNPs.
1: Oh, sure. Yes. How you customize it. Um, Yeah, many people are. How it differs from 23andMe. Sure, yeah. I mean, people are very familiar with services like Ancestry and 23andMe that, you know, through a simple saliva sample, you can, you know, see your ancestry. And then you can also download the data. And, you know, in my software, we were actually using that until a year ago. Uh, Then what happened is 23andMe made some changes, I mean, for better ancestry, you know, they want to look at other things. And they dropped the majority of the SNPs I was looking at. Uh, so it was either uh, either I, I do something or I just give up here. So I worked with Thermo Fisher, and I got my own chip. And what that means is it's a a little little device that they somehow extract your DNA, put it on there, and then through some process that I don't even really begin to understand, <laughs> we work with uh, Brooks at Rutgers to extract the DNA. So you spit into a little container. It's sent to uh, Brooks at uh, Rutgers University. Then they extract the DNA, put it on this chip that was made by, by Thermo Fisher. And we actually told Thermo Fisher, we want these SNPs, these RS numbers. And we have 300,000. Now, early in uh, 2019, we're going to be expanding that and saying, okay, we want to look at more SNPs. For example, for NADPH and NAD+, we're now working. We want to have the entire pathways of how that's created. Wow. In That's huge. Yeah. So we want to give a clinician a snapshot of here's all the places that things could go wrong. You know, for example, we now look at nqo one which is a big deal, IDH1, G6PD. Those are all the ones related to NADPH. But even as I'm sitting here, my, one of my researchers is working on coming up with all the SNPs, all the genes that are involved with NADPH. And I want us to be the leader in helping identify where there might be weakness in you know, NAD plus, NADPH production.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and just another comparison of 23 and me. They it's relatively cheap because it's subsidized. And what they fail to tell you, or at least fail uh, to tell you in explicit terms, that the reason they're able to sell it so inexpensively is that they sell your private data to the drug companies for lots of money. I mean. I don't know, millions or billions of dollars. It's, it's sure. just their, that's their goal is to create this massive database that the drug companies could leverage. And, sure. you, know, and I, it, you know, with your ship, that's private,
1: absolutely private. I've pledged to everyone I've been writing this data will never be sold to anyone. And the other thing people can do, if they're still worried, you can just change your name, you know, just, Come up with a fake name. Doesn't matter. We don't care. You just have to remember what it is. (laughs) And then, uh, and then that data from uh, Brooks at Rutgers gets loaded into my software, which is just in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, a huge database. And then it crunches the data and gives a, uh, a report including the, uh, the, the pyramid. What we'd like to do in the future, if we can, we, we realize that, you know, this is the 3D chess game played underwater. And many physicians say, Bob, this is the future. This is where it's going. This is what we have to do. I don't have the time. This is too complex. So we want to start working on artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah, that's so definitely the way to go.
1: Yeah, so we, we've got to be able to take the symptoms, deep the learning. labs, the SNPs, deep learning, and give the doctor a report. Again, you can never replace the physician. Yeah. But you can you know, take this data down and say, here are areas that I think you should really focus on it's your call you're the physician you have to make the call but these are areas that you should focus on uh because this is not the way it is now it's not for the faint of heart uh no No. yeah
0: (laughs) but but it's you but if you if you're sick and you've been everywhere and you're not getting better this is certainly an option especially as you mentioned just briefly alluded to but when you integrate this data with your urine organic acid test it's like oh my gosh it's like talking about then you're shining a a spotlight,
1: not just like a flashlight. Sure, exactly. So if you have SNPs in your glutathione pathways and your glutathione is trashed, well, now you can say, oh, I think I can support the glutathione by going here in the pathway. I mean, there's multiple steps. You know, it starts with homocysteine, down through cysteine, glutamine, the GSS gene, the oxidized, to the reduced. And now we can actually see where in that glutathione pathway the problem might be. Because, as we alluded to, sometimes just giving glutathione can be helpful. Sometimes it can be harmful. Yeah. We, you we don't may, know. Yeah. We may need to support the making of it. One of my favorite sayings is I'd rather have you make it than take it, if, at all, possible, if yeah. at all possible. If at all possible. And it. with glutathione, that can be possible if you know where to support. And one of the things I'm finding is that many times people's glutathione is in trouble because they don't have enough NADPH. Mm -hmm. And if you just give more glutathione, may not be all that helpful.
0: Yeah, another plug for molecular hydrogen, which is another way to recharge your glutathione and make it rather than take it.
1: Yes, exactly. All
0: right, well, we can go on for hours, but I think we probably should wrap it up and we'll put a lot of links to your site back and your resources that people can pursue for further information for either themselves or their clinicians. So Absolutely. You've uh, done a wonderful, masterful job, and you've got a great team around you, and it's just a pleasure to listen to. I I, I, Unfortunately, your call is too late for me because I live on the East Coast, so I'm usually in bed by the time it gets started,
1: (laughs) but I listen to the replay. so Okay, good. We'd love to have you on sometime to talk about uh, EMF great. And, uh, our, our whole goal is to help people get well and to, uh, you know, make a little bit of a dent in functional medicine to help functional practitioners have tools that they can help because functional medicine doctors see the tough cases. Yeah. And uh, we want to give them some tools so that they can do a better job.
0: Well, you're doing that already and it's just only getting better and better. So thank you for everything you're doing. And I look forward to connecting with you soon. Okay. Have a great rest of your day, buddy.